Father, tonight we enter into uh, 1 Corinthians, and we believe it to be your very word, uh, that you uh, revealed yourself to the Apostle Paul supernaturally, and you allowed him to see Jesus face to face. And you took him to the third heaven. He saw things that he's not even allowed to write down. But what he did write down, we look at and we read as if they have the authority of coming directly from you. So tonight we begin a 12-week journey through this book, and I ask very simply that you would show us what we need to know from these writings. For it is through the Holy Spirit that your word has proclaimed uh, a revelation that, Lord, you'll reveal, you'll show us what we need to know, and we'll understand it because that's what you do, that we might know you, the one true God, and Jesus who you sent to save us. So, Father, for this journey, we ask your favor. We ask your spirit to be powerful in every session, and we ask that through this you, you would be glorified and we would grow in Christ and in fellowship with each other so that we might, too, share this good news with those who do not know. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we'll begin a journey through what the Apostle Paul wrote we call 1 Corinthians. It's written to a church in Corinth. Interesting enough, my home church when I grew up was called Corinth. And if you study, there's a whole lot of Corinths out there because it is a prominent Bible name. Corinth was a strategic and well-traveled port city in what today, if you looked at the map, would be in southern Greece. This letter, letter from the Apostle Paul was one of his earliest writings. So if you want to look at all the writings, he wrote most of the New Testament. This would be one of the earlier of all of those that he wrote in what we call the New Testament. If you see the word, churchy word, epistles, it just simply means letters, okay? Fancy language for a simple word. It is believed that he wrote this letter to the church at Corinth during his third missionary journey, during his two to three year stay in Ephesus. Um, in that writing, 53 to 56 A.D., that would put the writing of this letter to Corinth about 23 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, approximately. So here's what I want you to get from that. The church is 23 years old. 23 years old. <laughs> it's a brand new organization that's spreading across the world. They don't have a whole lot of case study to go by. They're writing it new from scratch. So... The Corinth church was multicultural, and the city in which the church was located was filled with sin, every kind of sin. This new movement of the church brought many issues to the world in those days, and what's interesting to me when I was doing the study is that some of the issues that Paul will address are exactly the same issues that we deal with in modern America. There are nine issues that I'm just going to list casually, and they're not all-inclusive. So if you look at these nine, you think, well, I'll understand. No, no, this doesn't include everything. But there's nine items that are addressed specifically in 1 Corinthians. As I read them to you, or as you read them yourself, ask yourself a question. Has society changed that much? Probably not. Sexual immorality in the church. Taking fellow believers to court. Sexual immorality in the society that surrounds the church. Questions of marriage, divorce, and staying single. Should you marry? Should you be single? Questions of whether or not believers should eat meat sacrificed to idols. What's okay to eat? What's not okay to eat? Questions about what you should wear, what you shouldn't wear. That's all in this book. And by the way, much of church doctrine is drawn from the writings of Paul to the church at Corinth, even today. Questions about behavior around the Lord's Supper. Questions about spiritual gifts. That'll be a good one. I'll give you a heads up. Questions about the future resurrection of the dead. 
All of these things are addressed inside this book, this letter called 1 Corinthians. Ultimately, this letter was sent to meet the needs of this 23-year-old church so that their new converts, new believers, followers of Christ, they, they needed guidance. When the question comes up the very first time, they, don't, they can't say, well, how did our parents deal with it? Because nobody's ever dealt with it. It's brand new. It's a new movement. So Paul has the authority to give that guidance. Why does Paul have authority to give that guidance? Because that's really where we start tonight. Because he met Jesus face to face, and it was in that meeting face to face that, that, that Jesus does something to him. Well, he puts his spirit inside of him, and that spirit reveals truth and guides him how he's supposed to, well, he just knows what to do. You know, that's what the spirit does. He tells you, he shows you what to do when you don't know what to do. When you're clueless and you've got no idea how to respond to an event, suddenly there will be a moment of truth that you'll know what to do because he's, he's moving you into that moment and truth is revealed. So with all that background, here we go. Best way to do this is you just start. 1 Corinthians 1.1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of Christ Jesus. And from our brother Sothenes, I am writing to whom? I'm writing to God's church in Corinth. To you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord, their Lord, and ours. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Now, that's the, if you were the letter, if I wrote a letter, I would have some opening something. That's his opening something. It is to make sure that they know who the letter is coming from, who the letter is going to, and at least identifying him as some authority to be able to write this letter to a church. Paul, chosen by the will of God. What's that tell you? It tells me that he is not self-appointed as an authority in the church. He does not, on his own initiative, have the power to say, you can do this or not do this. God put him there. And specifically, as we go through this, know, know this. He is appointed by Christ personally to be what? The apostle to the Gentiles. Now, now Peter and his buddies are over here primarily focusing on the Jews. But there is only one that is given this specific calling to the Gentiles. It's Paul. And he, this writing is to a Gentile church in a pagan area. So of all the people in the world, this should have significance to is us because we're Gentile by birth, Gentile by origin. So he's talking to people just like us. Number two, this letter is from Paul and it bears his apostolic authority. He saw Jesus. He did not say, he was not walking down the Damascus Road one day and said, God, I'd like to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I'd like to go into all the, the, the Gentile world and tell them about that guy who died on the cross. In fact, if you know the story, you know the opposite occurs. He doesn't believe in the guy who died on the cross. He's on his way to Damascus to what? Unseat anybody who does believe in that man on the cross. And God has a sense of humor. Because he comes to the very one who is planning to stop the church and uses him to ignite a fire under the church that will make it burn. Even today it still burns because of what God did. Writing to God's church, not man's church. I'm, going, I'm, just, I'm just dissecting that first sentence, that first paragraph. Writing to those who were called of God. Called of God. We're going to get into that in a little bit. You didn't call him. You didn't wake up one day and look around your room and say, I'm going to get God on the phone and see if 
He'll let me be one of his kids. Let me tell you what, you would never make that call. Our nature will never do it. In fact, you know what our nature will do? Turn off the phone. Our nature will never call him. He called you. You answered him. He initiated this love relationship. Written to those who are called of God, just like Paul was called of God. He's walking down the road and God calls him. You and I were walking down our life's road and he called us. He called me. I did not call him. He called me. Now what you do with that calling, what you do after you receive that calling, you will have much input on. But I want you to understand, he makes it clear in his first paragraph that it's, it's the church called by God because Paul himself was called by God. Called what? Called to be holy. Called to be set apart. We're supposed to be different than the world. Holiness by the power of Christ, not by the power of man. So when we're called to God, we're called to be holy, called to be set apart, and we're called to be holy how? How, how can I be holy? Come on. How, how can I be holy? By His power. By His power. He moves inside of me. He moves inside of you. And I said it this past Sunday, can anybody in this room tonight imagine, imagine that the one who created the universe, the holy of holies, the definition of holy comes inside of your tent, comes inside of your temple, comes inside of this human flesh, and you are not different than you were before he arrived? Really? Do you believe that? That's even possible. He calls us to be holy because he is holy and renders us the power to become holy like him to become not to become him to become like him and he is holy grace and peace is the result his first paragraph is and he does this in almost all of his letters grace and peace to you through our lord jesus what what because ultimately that's the goal the goal of the church is what you live under grace and you experience peace now let's hit verse four I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you. Now that you belong to Christ Jesus. I always thank God. So Paul's saying, I'm praying. And as I'm praying, I'm saying, thank you, Lord, for those believers over in Corinth. I thank God for you, and I thank God not just that you're there, but that he gave you some specific gifts Unique to each one of you. Now, as I say that, I look across the room tonight, and I want you to know, there are probably people sitting in this room tonight that you have no idea what your gifts are. Maybe you've never really experienced any of them in application as a servant of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you will one day find what those are. It becomes the meaning and the purpose of your existence. One, and that God has equipped every one of us for something, some things, some, some, everybody got one. Listen, I, I studied the parable of the talents. Everybody got one. Somebody say, well, I didn't get anything. You got one. There's something that he wants to you to use for his glory and multiply for the souls of man. And he thanks God for these gracious gifts he has given you. Now that you belong to Christ, you have gifts. Now, you might not necessarily have applicable gifts before you belong to Christ, but now that you belong to Christ, you have gifts. Because when he comes inside of you, here it comes again, when he comes inside of you, he brings something with him, himself. And he has gifts. And if he moves into your house, you're going to have gifts. Verse 5, through him, not through me, through him, through Jesus, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. So he's very complimentary so far. Okay, so far. It changes a little later on in the letter. He's very complimentary. It's good to do that in the beginning of the letter so they'll finish reading the letter. Okay. This calling of God comes with gracious gifts. We belong to Christ. And here's the first big point I want to spend some time on. We belong to Christ Jesus versus belonging to the world. You've heard me say multiple times over the last year, there's only two spirits. There's only two sides. There's only two options for me to belong to. We belong to the world or we belong to Jesus. 
Let's focus on that belong to this world first. So go back up to the top of the page, and I want you to notice verse 4. Because here's going to be my first emphasis in teaching. I always thank my God for you, for the gracious gifts he has given you, now that something's happened. Now that you belong to Jesus. What does it mean, belong to Jesus? What does it mean to belong to this world? So let's, let's study that for a moment. So Paul's 1 Corinthians, and let's, let's go over and make sure we understand how he's laying the foundation there are spiritual gifts assigned to people who belong to Jesus. Okay, there's what he just said. What does it mean? Go to John 8, 23, it's on the sheet. And, and Jesus continued, you are from below. Well, where's below? He's talking about earth people, not, not hell people. Earth, you are from below. I'm from above. You belong to this world. I do not. Well, why? Why does he say that? Because he's not from here. He's from heaven. That's why I said that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe I am who I claim to be, you'll die in your sins. So Jesus lays a foundation that earth people, by their very nature, belong to the world. Are you with me? Earth people, and I don't see anybody from outer space in the room, at least not yet. So we belong to this world. He says, I don't. Jesus says, I don't. I'm not from here. So go to John 17. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word. He's talking, he's talking to his father. Father, I've given them, my followers, your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world. What? The world, Jesus says this, I handed your word. Jesus is talking to his father, to his daddy. And he says, I've handed Peter, Andrew, James, and John, for example, your word. And the world hates them because now that they have your word, now that they have me, they don't belong to the world, and that makes the world hate them. Don't, don't miss it. They don't belong to the world. What was it that made them not belong to the world? I gave them your word. What is the word? Jesus. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. He is the word. So he doesn't belong to the world. And if he gives you the word, now that word has to, it can't just come bounce off. It's got to go in. But if that word goes in, then he goes in. You can't separate the word and Jesus. They are the same. So if the word and Jesus comes in, you can say this, I don't belong to this world. Verse 15, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Now listen, if he's speaking this, it says, well, they don't belong to the world, let's just get them out of the world, right? He says, I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world. I'm asking you to keep them safe from the evil one while they are in the world. Whose world is it? At least for right now, it's Satan's. Don't be deceived, at least for now. One day it's going to be snatched away from him. Next verse, verse 16. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. He says it twice. Make them holy by your truth. What is the truth? The word. Teach them your word, which is truth. What are we doing tonight? Teaching his word, which is truth. Why? Because I don't want to belong to this world. Because I know the master of this world. And we're going to belong to one or the other. The one who's not from this world or the one who is from this world. Finally, verse 18. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. But they don't belong to the world, but they're going to go into the world. That's the church's assignment. Now, let's go one more. Actually, there's two more. 1 John 3, 1. See how very much our Father loves us? He calls us His children, and that is what we are, His children. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children. 
Who doesn't know that Christians are God's kids? Who doesn't know? The people who belong to the world. What if they knew we were God's kids? That would be the first evidence that they too might move from belonging to the world to belonging to God. Because of verse 2, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but He has not yet shown us what we'll be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. One more, Revelation 3.10, and then we'll jump back over to the text. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that's going to come upon the whole world to test. Now, now this is his letter to one of the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation. This particular one is the church of Philadelphia. And God makes a promise to the church of Philadelphia if you'll remain in me, if you'll remain in my name and you'll remain in my word, I will protect you from the great time of testing that's going to come upon the world. But here's what I want you to notice. The great time of testing will come upon the whole world to test what? What is the final test? To test those who belong to this world. You know what happens in the church in Philadelphia if you don't belong to the world? He takes you out of the world. This is a description I'm convinced of the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. He says, let me read it again now that I've planted that seed. Because you, church, have obeyed my command to persevere. I will protect you from the great time of testing. I believe that's a reference to the tribulation itself. The seven-year tribulation. How would he protect the church from the great time of testing, the seven-year tribulation? I can give you one really good way. Remove us before it starts. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that's going to come upon the whole world. The whole world's going to experience it. The whole world, not regional, the whole world's going to be tested. And the test will be determined by those who belong to this world. And then he says, I'm coming soon. Hold on what you have so that no one take away your crown. Connected to Christ and belonging to Christ. That's what Paul begins his letter to Corinth. You, you cannot, <clears throat> you must belong to Christ. <clears throat> not belong to the world, but belong to Christ. Serve Christ with these gifts. Receive from Christ while you wait for Christ. Serve Him with what? How do I know how to serve Him? Because when He comes into you and fills you with the Spirit, He'll give you a gift. And that gift will be your assignment. Your assignment is the gift. Your assignment is the utilization of the gift for His glory. Now, let's go to verse 6. This confirms what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every, listen, listen church, I have used this so many times in my own life to convince myself that there is nothing missing. Nothing's missing. Nothing's missing. Verse 7, you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly await for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're thinking, if there's something that you need for you to get started, the only thing you need to get started is Jesus. And if you've got Jesus, you've got all you need to get started. Now, that doesn't mean that I am not saying that all of those gifts are fully developed at that moment. Some of those gifts will take years to fully develop in your life. But those gifts are there. He's given them. Now you have every spiritual gift you need. Why is he telling a 23-year-old church this? Because <laughs> how intimidating would it be to be a 23-year-old church? There's not going to be like a church like Anderson County where there's a church on every corner. 
and you got grandparents of history. You got books of history of how the church dealt with certain things. This is new. And you have every spiritual gift you need now that you're in Jesus Christ. What power keeps us strong till the end? This is the confidence that we have in Christ. Verse 8. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus returns. Now I'm going to ask you, has anybody noticed what I've noticed? He sure talks about Jesus coming back a lot. So if you think I'm strange, he is too. Okay? How far have we gotten? We're in eight verses. How many times has he already, in eight verses, talked about the return of Christ? And I can guarantee you this. I can guarantee you this. We're closer to that day than he was. So I ought to be able to talk about it more than him. See, I have everything I need. He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be free from the blame, free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this. Terry won't do this. God will do this. For he is faithful to do what he says. And he has invited you into a partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's where I love the New Living Translation. He's invited me and he's invited you into a partnership with Jesus Christ. And he will do it. He, his power will complete the assignment in this partnership. Now Paul's going to do something. As we go to verse 10, Paul's will deal with harmony inside the body of Christ. Harmony. That harmony does not mean harm many. Okay? I mean, make sure you understand what a harmony means in modern English. It does not mean harm many. It's harmony. This means you get along with many. It's a different translation. We experience the Holy Spirit's application. We have different spiritual gifts, and we have to get along. Why? Practically speaking, let me give you two reasons. Number one, the world's watching. Number two, God's watching. So if you're in the room tonight and there's somebody in the room or you're hoping they're not here tonight and you got trouble with them, he knows. You're going to have to deal with it. Can I just say something? If you're waiting on your spiritual gifts to be manifest and you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, a brother, a sister in Christ, that spiritual gift will never develop itself until you deal with that. I can assure you. You are hindering your own ability to be used in the kingdom of Christ. He's ready to use you. He's already given you all you need. But you don't want to, you, there's something you think, and he's going, that's what we're about to get into. So hang on. We're about ready to get into real life people in the church. You think the world's changed very much? No. I doubt they had laptops back then, but I think everything else is the same. Verse 10, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters. Notice he's saying brothers and sisters. In church language, what's that mean? Fellow believers, followers of Jesus. I appeal to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the ability to speak on Jesus' behalf by the authority of Jesus Christ. To do what? I appeal to you by Jesus' name, live in harmony with each other. Can I translate? Get along. Get along. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Let's just kind of land there for a moment. Let there be no divisions in the church. What does that mean? One group is unhappy about something. And you know what? Okay, let me just, I'm going to be real transparent. You know what I've noticed when somebody gets unhappy about something? And it doesn't matter if it's church or where you work. Same thing. I, I'm, I've been around long enough, I've noticed something happened. If there's a certain person in a group of people that have something common and they're unhappy about something, on their mind, whether they know it or not, they're seeking a second person to be unhappy with them. They want to find somebody in agreement about the disagreement. 
Don't tell me it's wrong. Listen, I've been around long enough. I've watched it. I watched it when I was in the public work. I'm watching it in the church. If there is an issue that has made somebody upset, they're going to seek out someone who now has the same issue. Because you feel much better if there's somebody else who agrees with you so you can disagree together. Right? Paul calls it out. Let there be no divisions in the church. You've heard misery loves company. It's true. Who wants to be unhappy by yourself? It's not very much fun. But if you can be unhappy as a team, whoa, this could get good. Right? This could be fun. But be of one mind, united in thought and united in purpose. So uh, I'm looking at the room. There's 175 people in here, I'm guessing. Maybe, maybe more like 200. I don't know. How in the world are all of us going to be united in mind and purpose? There's only one chance. You know what it is. The Holy Spirit. Because the only common denominator, other than we're all earthlings, the only common denominator is what? Jesus. And if he's in here, did I get a different Jesus than you? Did, did you get the junior bacon Jesus and I got the Whopper? <laughs> is, that, is that how this works? I mean, it's the same Jesus, right? If it's the same Jesus, then... How in the world are you and I going to fight over an issue that has any significance? How? we got one chance. Is that we're spirit-filled. Does that mean everybody's going to agree? That does not mean everybody agrees. It does mean everybody gets along. It does mean that. Yeah, it does. And you know how you do that? How many of y'all have been married more than five years? You already know how to do it. Sometimes, shut up and sit down. That works in my house. Sometimes. Not all the time. Just shut up and sit down. Guess what? Argument's over. Verse 11. For some members of... Now he's going to get into some detail. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. Little snitch, Chloe. She must have wrote him a letter. So, Chloe told me that in the church at Corinth, you all are having quarrels. Verse 12, some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Everybody on Paul's side, come over here. All right? Sounds so junior high, doesn't it? And some of you are saying, I follow Apollos. I liked Apollos better. His, sherm his sermons were shorter. Anybody on Apollos' side, come over here. Paul just goes on and on and on. And some of them say, I follow Peter. And some say, well, the dignified ones, oh no, I follow Christ. Why is Paul writing this letter? Because these are real people. Is this real stuff? This is real stuff. Sound familiar? Some things haven't changed much. But notice Paul's response to them about division. Verse 13. Has Christ divided into factions? Are there different Jesuses? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. For now, no one can say they were baptized in Paul's name, in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. I don't know why I find that so funny, because I... I don't remember who I baptized either, so I got a lot from that one too. So I had somebody come up to me and one time and they said, Hi, I'm whoever, you baptized me, but don't you remember? And I'm like, huh, well, <laughs> I have no clue who this person is. Yeah, yeah. 
And then I read this, and I'm thinking, he don't remember either. I, I don't remember baptizing anyone else. Verse 17, for Christ didn't send me to baptize. Listen, that day he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He says, I want you to go baptize. No, no, no. Listen carefully. Does that mean that baptism's not important? That's not his point. Paul had a specific gift, a specific calling, a specific assignment from God. He says, Paul, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the good news. And not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Now, now here's Paul's point in response to what? The quarrels, the divisions. It's not about the messenger of Christ. It's not about the preacher or the teacher or the evangelist. It's about Jesus. And if you take your eyes off of him, God help us all. If I take my eyes off of him, God help us all. Paul was called of God to preach the good news. Baptism or baptizing wasn't his main purpose. It wasn't his calling. But baptism was the result of his main purpose. It's, it's not taking away from baptism, but baptism would naturally occur if he would do the main purpose. Today, same thing. You want people to be baptized? Preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. It's been working for a long time. First, preach the word. You see, Paul understood the calling was unique and specific. The rest will follow the preaching. I've had numerous, in 16 years, probably 15 years, I've had numerous people ask me, tell me, Terry, what, what, what do you attribute the success of the Nineveh Christian Church? Preach the gospel. That's it. Put everything else, throw everything else off your desk. Preach the gospel. Take that book. Take the words in that book and write them on your heart and allow those words on your heart to come out of your mouth. Everything else will take care of itself. Everything else will take care of itself. Now, did I know that 15 years ago? No. No. I know that now. I stressed way too much back then. I would have had really black hair now if I hadn't done that. Probably. Preach the word. Anything else will empty the gospel of its power. Paul said it, not me, but I confirm it. Anything else will empty the gospel of its power. And what, what does it mean, empty the gospel of its power? The power to change lives is not your cleverness or your method or your technique or your idea or your building or your lighting. Or... No, you might get a crowd, but it won't change their hearts. The gospel changes people from the inside out. How does it happen? I'm not even sure. I know. I just know that light penetrates darkness, and every time light penetrates darkness, darkness leaves. Do you doubt that? If we light penetrates the darkness of this room, you turn the lights out, darkness comes back. Turn the light on and all the darkness leaves. It is the redeeming blood of Jesus on the cross that sets us free. And, and I want to say something. Listen carefully. For some reason, I don't know why, we'll ask him one day, God decided that the method through which the blood of Christ would be communicated would be preaching. He decided. Not Paul, not Peter. He decided it. Preaching releases the power. Preaching does it. That is the good news and nothing else can take its place. What? Preaching the gospel. Preaching the redeeming blood of Christ on the cross. That's the good news. The gospel is not about clever speeches. It is not about methods. 
The good news is that Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from death that was caused by sin. Christian bookstores are filled with books about methods. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Don't misquote me. I am not against Christian bookstore books. In fact, I'm just finishing one right now by David Jeremiah, uh, a book that Jim Doss gave me. Well, Jim's here tonight or not. Title was interesting. I thought I'd read it. I'm all for reading books. But I'm going to tell you what. Methods will not advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are no methods in that bookstore that will advance the gospel of Jesus Christ short of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how it works. And I'm going to prove it to you in just a few minutes. Nothing clever and no method can replace, replace the fundamental message of God. Verse 18, here it comes. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is what? The very power of God. So I want you, let's dissect that sentence. The message of the cross is foolish to those who belong to the world. So if you doubt what that just said, tomorrow do an experiment in your workplace. You know somebody is an unbeliever. They're not ashamed to say they're an unbeliever. And just walk up to them tomorrow during break, cup of coffee in your hand and say, Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for you. You have a wonderful day. <laughs> They're going to turn you into human resources. <laughs> you know why? The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed to destruction. Did they just find that little speech enlightening? Oh, he loves me. He loved me enough to tell me about Jesus. No, they think you're nuts. The message of the cross, that there was a man who hung on a piece of wood on a hill in Jerusalem to pay a price before God that would get you out of the grave is foolishness until you believe it. And how did you believe it? I can tell you how I believed it. Somebody preached it. Somebody preached it. And somebody preached it. And somebody preached it. And they didn't have to change it. They didn't have to add to it. They didn't have to take anything away from it. They didn't have to say, well, let's don't say the blood part because that's kind of, No, they just preached it. Just as it is, just preach it. And then God does something. What? He just does something. Some of the people who hear those preachers, it's gonna, that seed's going to fall on a piece of good soil. And it's going to start to grow. And the next thing you know, you don't belong to the world anymore, and your whole human perspective's different. And now you see everything different. and different. It's, why? Because it's not me looking at the world anymore, because I don't belong to the world anymore. I belong to that one on that tree. And he says this, verse 18, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved, what is it? What is it? Come on. It's the power of God. You want a testimony? I know who I used to be, and I know who I am now, and I don't recognize the two people. And the only thing between those two people is a man named Jesus on that tree. And verse 19, as the scriptures say, I will destroy. Why, why will God? God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Listen, this is powerful tonight. In modern intellectual America, this is powerful. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligent, uh, intelligence of the intelligent. Say that three times real fast. God, through Paul, tells an, a city, a pagan city in Greece, that God plans to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. Who's he going after? Smart people. Okay? Boy, it makes you feel good to be dumb sometimes, doesn't it? Some people want clever and some people want eloquent speeches. And those same people will see the cross as foolish 
and simplistic. Those people that you go up to at work and talk about the man dies on the tree, it's too simple. Give me something fresh. Give me something new. That message is outdated, right? Give me something. What do you got new for me, preacher? I don't have anything new. In fact, I have often sat down at my study to write, and I come to this simple conclusion. I am preaching the same material they've been preaching for 2,000 years. I got nothing new. I got nothing new. I'm not doing it in Greek. I'm doing it in English. But I got nothing new. Think about it. For 2,000 years, we have the same sermon. God loved the world so much He gave His only Son. Whoever would believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Do I have to... Do, is that, do I need to modify that for the next generation? But to those who are being saved, those who are being called by God to belong to God, it is the revelation and the very power of God. Wise people aren't going to get it until they allow this fundamental truth to become real to them. Now, does that somehow attack the intellect of humans? That's not the point. It's not about the wise people, about somebody with an IQ over a certain number struggles with becoming a Jesus follower. No, that, that's not it. Don't, don't think that's what it means. The problem is people overthink it. Everybody wants to overthink it. My, the greatest example, the greatest example I've ever heard to describe that, Francis Chan did it one time, and, and he tells the story of this, that in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost, and Peter is standing there, and he's about to preach a sermon he did not write, because he didn't know this was going to happen that day. And the Holy Spirit descends and falls upon these people, and they start, Peter stands up and he preaches to a great crowd of Jewish people. And when he finishes his sermon, but by the way, he didn't write, the Holy Spirit spoke it through him. What did the people say? As if with one voice they cried out, what must we do to be saved? Stay with me, stay with me. What, what must we do? They're pierced to their hearts. What? The Word of God just went through a man's mouth and, and it convicted everybody in the crowd. What must we do to be saved? And Peter says what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift, this promise is for you and for your children and your children's children. And, and, and what happens next? What happens next? They just did it. They just did it. They didn't say, well, what happens if I die on the way to the lake? What happens if between the time I confess Christ and you put me under the water, I have a heart attack? What happens if I go into the water and my feet slip and I hit my head, but I haven't really gone all the way under and I die? Am I saved? You know what they did? They just did it. And 3,000 people were added to the church that day. You know what? You can take a kid that's 10 years old and read Acts 2 to them and they'll get it. And you take the average churchgoer today and they struggle with it. You tell me why. Maybe you're in the room tonight and you've never been baptized. I don't get it. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. What do you mean you're still thinking about it? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. So why does he confound the wise? Because the wise want to look at that sentence and say, hmm, wonder what that means. And you take a 10-year-old kid, and you know what it means? Just what it says. Repent and be baptized. That's it. Some, some things haven't changed at all. It's the same exact story. 
Wise people aren't going to get it until they allow this fundamental truth to become real to them. These are the words of God. They're not the words of the Apostle Paul. They're the words of God. He just sent a message to mankind. Do you need to think about it? Yeah, while you're running up front. Yeah. I suppose that's why Jesus called fishermen instead of religious elites when he began his unstoppable movement of God to save the world. Why? Because fishermen were probably less likely to theorize it. Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 29. In that text, he's quoting the Old Testament using the Word of God as authority. But I want to just show you what he's quoting. Now, 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 don't get confused. What he says in verse 19, previous page, as the Scriptures say. So what's the authority of Paul in that moment? Now, he's already speaking as the authority of Jesus, right? I am called by Jesus to preach the gospel. And then he pulls out a secondary authority, and the Scriptures say, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. Where did he get that? Well, he got it from God, but where did he get it? He got it from Isaiah chapter 29. And here's what Isaiah 29 says. And so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote or repetition. Because of this, I will once again astound these hypocrites with amazing wonders. The wisdom of the wise will what? I will astound these hypocrites. Hypocrites. They say they believe me. I will astound these. The wisdom of the wise will pass away, and the intelligence of the intelligent will disappear. If someone comes to you and tells you they can raise the sea level because they're wise, run. Because I went to the ocean, and I couldn't see the end of it. And me, with a very limited intellect, can understand there's no man that's going to control that. And yet we have people who are so wise, and hordes of people follow people. That's not about raising the sea level. It's just an example of the wisdom of the wise that is going to come to an end. Because usually the same people that say they're going to control the sea level are the same people that, have, that mock the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus says this was God's pleasure. What? That the wisdom of the wise is going to pass away. Why did he choose fishermen? Why? It's his good pleasure. I want you to know that I'm not making that up. Luke 10, 21. I call this, before I read it, I call this, uh, um, Eugene Peterson calls it the great reversal. He doesn't use this application. I use the application, the great reversal. Those on the bottom are going to go to the top. Those on the top are going to go to the bottom. People climbing this ladder their whole life because they're wise and intelligent and they think that the prize is at the top of the ladder and they climb, 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 climb. And then Jesus comes, turns the ladder over. All the bottom people go to the top and all the top people go to the bottom. Whoops, that didn't work out very good. So here comes Luke 10, 21. At that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and he said, Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing it to whom? Childlike. Me. The simple people. For revealing it to people who knew that they didn't have the intellect to complete, compete with those others. You revealed it to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. So where does this leave human wisdom? Come on, where does it leave human wisdom? No, uh, listen, there's a, please don't take me out of context. There are some geniuses that are Jesus followers. It's not about your IQ. It's about who you put your trust in. Listen to these four direct quotes from Bill Nye at the Ark Encounter. I'll I, I tell you what, that guy had no idea he gave me so much material in that one meeting. 
He was there visiting the ark. Ken Ham invited Bill Nye, the science guy, to the ark on July 8, 2016. He actually came, brought his news cameras with him. After that visit, Bill Nye, Ken Ham got together. Bill Nye said four things. Here we go. This guy's on TV. This guy is an intellectual. He's a science guy. He's wise and learned. And everybody says, Bill Nye said so. Here we go. Bill Nye says, it's not crazy to believe we're descendants of Martians. And you think I'm foolish because I trust in a man on a cross. Number two, when you're dead, you're done. Can I just stop and say, what if you're wrong on those first two? Number three, right and wrong are determined by the consensus of the tribe. Think about that one. Number four, the universe and life arose and by natural processes. No supernatural whatsoever. Chance, random processes. Now contrast that worldview. Now I'm going to tell you, I don't know Bill Nye, so I, I make no judgment of Bill Nye other than his own words speak for themselves. But I'm convinced by his words that Bill Nye belongs to this world. Okay? I'll leave the rest to God. And here comes the Word of God with foolishness to those who are perishing. To the Bill Nye's of the world, this is foolishness. Here it comes, verse 20. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for a sign from heaven. And it is foolish to the Greeks or the Gentiles who seek human wisdom. So we preach that Christ was crucified and the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, Nonsense. So what did the Jews want? This is an interesting perspective. Paul is a Jew. Paul says, what do the Jews want? They want a sign from heaven. Lord, give me a sign from heaven that Jesus is the Messiah. Give me a sign. God said through Jesus, no sign will be given except that of the sign of Jonah. The Son of Man will be raised on the third day. That's the only sign you're getting. And what do the Gentiles want? Wisdom. They want enlightenment. They want to be able to see and understand God. And yet they read Acts chapter 2 that reveals the identity and purpose and gospel of God. And they say, no, too simple, too simple. Show me something new, something deep. I remember Ken Ham. He did a study. Some of you in the room were probably in that study several years ago. He painted a picture of the gospel. The Word standing between man and God. <clears throat> I remember his visual illustration. He had man on one side and God on the other side. And how can man make his way to God? And in between God and man, the gospel was the only way to God. So the only way man could get to God was to get over the gospel or through the gospel. And yet people tried to get to God and they tripped over the gospel. Some people try to get to God, and maybe they acknowledge there is a God, but the gospel, rather than getting them there, trips them on their way there. The Jews. They believe in God, they're seeking God, many of them are, and yet they reject Jesus as Messiah, so the gospel trips them. Rather than leading them there, it becomes a stumbling stone that they fall over. And the Gentiles, they want wisdom. They want to develop some way to get around the gospel and get to God, we'll think that through and get back with you. But it is the gospel and the gospel alone that leads us to God. Last page, verse 24. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentile, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest human strength. This is indeed one of the mysteries of God. The calling and the revealing 
and to whom. It is a mystery. I'll admit it is a mystery. Why? Notice back up in verse 24. Let's focus on the beginning of verse 24. To those called by God. We started tonight by saying that you didn't call him. He called you. Those called by God. Are there some that never get a call? It's a mystery. I know this. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And, it, and at the last day, I, Jesus, will raise them up. As it is written in the Scriptures, they will be taught by whom? By God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. How many times have you read the phrase in the Bible, only a few in your heart, does a thump thump extra beat i have on numerous occasions read the word only a few only a few only a few boom boom what do you mean only a few many are called finish it many are called but few are chosen what does it mean let's go to verse 26 remember dear brothers and sisters that if that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Did God call you because of your status? No. Few of you had anything when he called you. Right? That's what he's saying. Instead, instead of looking at your status, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise and he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful this is the picture of the great reversal i've heard people say that many got men struggle with this sometimes more than women they spend their whole life climbing the ladder to success only to get to the top and find it's leaning against the wrong building you got somewhere you didn't want to be you got to the bottom Verse 28, God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring nothing, bring to nothing what the world considers important. This is the ladder turning over. Let me read it again. And God used them to bring nothing, to bring to nothing what the world considered important. It's the turning over of values. The top goes to the bottom, the bottom goes to the top. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So who did it? <clears throat> to you. I'm assuming tonight you're in this group on a Wednesday when it's storm outside, I'm assuming you're a Jesus follower. Pretty good assumption. Who opened your eyes to see, and who opened your ears to hear, and who opened your heart to believe? Who did it? Did you do it? Was it you or was it God? And of whom will your life boast? Of whom will your life boast? That answers the question of who you think did it. If you think you did it, you'll boast of yourself. If you think God did it, you'll boast of him. If you did it, you could boast. But Paul acknowledges the power of God alone redeems us from the grave. Verse 30 and 31. God has united you with Christ Jesus. Who did it? He did it. God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit. God made him to be wisdom itself. So what is wisdom? Jesus. For the benefit of us, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure. He made us holy. And he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, and everybody does, if you want to boast, boast only in Jesus. God did it. And I'll just close tonight to say this. One, one more thing. How many of y'all watched the Super Bowl? Okay. In sports in general, not just the Super Bowl, there's one thing that drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. You get a player who's paid millions of dollars to do a job, and he does the job that he's paid to do, and he runs through the line of scrimmage, the whistle's blown, he runs through the line of scrimmage, and he does something like this. Please stay with me. 
He goes, <laughs> kills me, just kills me. And I'm thinking to myself, what does that mean? Me, 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 me. And I'm thinking, they're paying you a million dollars to do that thing you just did over there, and why should you me, me, me to just do what you were supposed to be doing all along? And the world wants to do this. It hurts a little bit. <laughs> what is, if you're going to boast, listen, if you're going to boast, this is it. It's him. And I make a confession tonight. It is all too wonderful for me to comprehend why he would send his son to die for me. Why he would pick up that phone. On that night in August of 1988 and call me. And he said, Either you believe it all, or you believe none of it. And tonight you'll decide. Why? I don't know. It is too wonderful for me to comprehend. But I know it's true. So I close with Psalms 139. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart. And you know everything about me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You, you know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going, where I, where I, you know, you know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Father, in Jesus' name, we acknowledge you called us. We all belong to the world. We were headed for destruction, and you called us, and you purchased us, and you redeemed us, and you made us your own. And that is too wonderful for us to understand. But by faith we receive it as the treasure of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for being here. See you next, see you this coming weekend, Sunday, but also next Wednesday.